Hey everybody, this is Dr. Adi Jaffe, founder of Ignited and the author of the Abstinence Myth book. And I got to tell you, if you're looking to be in better health and learn about biohacking and everything that will make your life better, you should really be listening to the Hack Life podcast with my amazing friend, Joel Evan. Hey, what's up? Joel Evan here, host of the Hack Life podcast and weight loss coach for busy men. I'm excited to tell you I just dropped an eight-week program dedicated to motivated and busy men who want to lose weight. Let's face it, guys. When you lose weight, you feel more confident and you have higher self-esteem and you go out and you crush the world. You crush your goals and you start living your higher purpose. So if you're interested, DM me at Joel Evan Coaching or email me below, info at joelevancoaching.com. All right, I'm here with Dr. Adi Jaffe, the author of The Abstinence Myth, The New Approach to Overcoming Addiction Without Shame, Judgment, or Rules. Dr. Jaffe is also the founder of Ignited and is really known for addiction recovery. Dr. Adi Jaffe, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. Hey, um... Really excited to have you here. You know, we got a chance to connect recently at the, uh, the Biohacking Congress event in Silicon Valley not too long ago. And your talk on addiction and uh, addiction recovery yep. really just blew my mind. And it was one of the best uh, talks that I got to see that day. And um, I was just really impressed with you. And um, so thank you. Thank you, man. And um, but I, yeah, I, so I'm so excited to have you on the show today and just kind of talk about what you do. And uh, your own personal story, I just recently read your book, and I was blown away that you have your own story about addiction and recovering from addiction. So I thought it'd be cool just to start things off, if you could just tell the audience and tell everybody like why you're so passionate about this subject and why it's like part of your life right now, your mission. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I'll give you the Cliff's notes just because... People can see the fuller story either in the book or uh, uh, in the TED Talks that I've given. But, you know, the shorthand of it is I come from a really nice family. Um, my dad was a physician. My mom was a human resource manager in a bank. They, they were doing well. We lived in the same apartment my first 14 years of life. My parents stayed together. And yet somehow by the time college was over... I was smoking meth in between classes in the bathroom in order to like, stay awake long enough to take tests and finish homework. I was selling drugs because I was using so much that I needed to sell drugs to be able to afford um, the, all the drugs that I was using. I barely graduated college and I... You know, my friends were other drug dealers, heavy, heavy drug users and, you know, strippers and dancers and sort of like exactly who you expect in a kind of in a Breaking Bad episode. <laughs> um, that was my life. And I was 20, 20, 21 when that started and went until I was 26. And honestly, by the time I was 25, everybody in my life, maybe even as far as 26, everybody in my life thought that. As long as I don't die or end up in prison for the rest of my life, my life would be a success. Like that's <laughs> that's pretty much the where the bar was set by then. And I did. I got a year in jail. I went to jail for a year because a SWAT team came to my house and paid me a visit on a Saturday morning. And I had to kind of 
you know, shit or get off the pot. I had to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. Everybody else I knew had either been shot, been killed, or served many, many years in prison, like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten kind of years, and and had at that point gotten used to living their life inside and life outside. That's sort of how they looked at it. And I knew I didn't want that. But I didn't know what else to do. I barely graduated college. I had no aspirations. I had no skills that I knew. I mean, you know, now being an entrepreneur, I realize some of the skills are actually very transferable. But uh, but that wasn't, <laughs> you know, being a drug dealer is not something you put on a resume. So what do you no. do? How do you start up again? And that was in 2003 is when I got out of jail. And I've spent the last, you know, 17, 18 years gradually reconstructing my life. I would say it took maybe two to three years before I was at a stage where I could at least have conversations with people and and have something to tell them about what was going on. It took that long to restructure enough of it. But I went back to school. I couldn't get a job. I had nine felonies on my record. Nobody would hire me. Um, I went back to school because that was the only option I had. I got two masters, one from Cal State Long Beach, one from UCLA. Then I got my PhD at UCLA. And I really, I wanted to understand what the hell happened to me. Like, how did I go from well-functional kid playing soccer with his friends and basketball in the backyard to, you know, a drug dealer carrying around guns and, and smoking meth all day? I, like, how did that happen? Yeah. And I've spent the last 10, 11 years using the knowledge that I gained to try to help people who are struggling like I used to. Yeah, so cool. I mean, and when you see when you see who you are today, it's like... I, I was reading the book and I'm like, no way. There's no way this guy was a meth addict. Like, he did, there's no meth addict vibe at all from this. Like, what? Um, so, and I, by the way, I think that's an important lesson because I went super dark. Like, I was 124 pounds. I'm now 164 pounds. So you can imagine me at 40 pounds lighter. It's not a pretty sight. Yeah. Um, I went really, really dark. But there are a lot of people who use drugs very regularly that you barely know. And, and I think that's actually one of the problems is we think we know what quote unquote drug addicts are like, but we have no idea. Yeah. Was, was there anything like, what was the biggest thing you learned through that process of coming through your own addiction? Or was there like one thing that like really helped pull you through your addiction? Or maybe it was a m- multiple things. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the thing that really turned things around was, there was a long period where I was I was understanding the circumstances of what was going on, but I didn't really understand my responsibility in it. Part of the reason for this story is part of the reason why I uh, completely don't believe in the powerlessness component of traditional recovery in AA, by the way. Um, so I get arrested by a SWAT team. My lawyer says, you got to go to rehab. Um, you're obviously addicted. There's obviously an issue here. If we don't get you into treatment, we don't get you off of drugs, the judge is going to look at you. He's going to throw you away for a decade. And I said, okay, let's go to rehab. So I try rehab. Um, I never would have thought to go to it otherwise, but here I am. And it kind of worked. I mean, I was taking Tylenol PM to fall asleep, and I didn't really believe in what they were doing. And they (laughs) made me call myself an alcoholic all the time, even though I didn't have an alcohol problem at that time. But... (laughs) Whatever. I was I was the most sober I had been since I was 14 years old for a month. And after a month, they let me go back to work. The thing is, work for me was a, um, 
a recording studio. I was making music in LA, and so it had drugs in it. It had computers with porn in it. It was all I did was I stood around, did drugs, watched porn, and pretended to make music. That was kind of literally what I did. Um, and I did that for two months in rehab. I would go leave rehab in the morning, go to the studio, play around with music, mess around with my friends, do drugs, and then come back. And after two months, they tested me. They found out I'd been using, and they kicked me out on the spot. Now, it's funny, right? We can already talk about how weird it is that you go to a place to help you with addiction, and the moment you prove you're actually addicted <laughs> to something, they're like, hey, you got to leave. <laughs> Wait, isn't this exactly why I'm here? Yeah. Um, but they kicked me out. They literally told me this when I, they said, hey, if you can stay sober for 30 days, we'll take you back. That makes no sense to me. No sense. If you can fix the problem you came to us for by yourself, we'll take you back and we'll take your $15,000, $20,000 a month to give you a room. It was an insane idea, but I'm, I'm in my car. I was essentially homeless because in uh, LA, if you've been caught selling drugs anywhere, you get evicted from your apartment. So my apartment was gone. I had my Honda Civic and I'm in the car and my dad called me because we actually, because of my recovery starting, we actually developed a much nicer relationship that we had for 15 years before that. Mm. My dad calls and I have this whole set of lies set up for him. Hey, the rehab was really far from the studio and I was driving a lot, so I'm going to look for something newer. I'm checking myself out of it, blah, blah, blah. And in the middle of it, this voice came on in my head and my stomach was in knots and it said, you know, just be honest with him. Don't lie. You've been more honest with him in the last couple of months than you have in your entire life. Just don't lie to him. Just tell him the truth. And it took everything I had, but then I just told him, I said, you know what? I'm lying to you. Um, I didn't check out. They tested me. I've been using meth. They kicked me out. And my dad went off on me. My dad was not a guy who normally yelled, but he went off. What the hell is wrong with you? You just threw away three months and like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. you are going to go to prison for the rest of your life. You're crazy. Da, da, da. And he went on the tirade for a little bit. And then he ended it with something he didn't ever used to do before. Before, he would always tell me what to do. Don't do anything. Sit in the car. I'm going to call another rehab. We'll figure it out. But he had no idea what to do. And my dad was a really smart guy. No idea what to do. So he go, he ends this tirade with, what the hell do you expect me to do now? And he asked me a question. So I had to think about it. And I thought, <laughs> I go, yeah. you know what? You can't do anything. There's nothing you can do to make this better. I need to fix this. This is my problem. I created it. I need to go fix it. And I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do yet. But give me a couple of days. I'm going to figure this out. This was the first time in my life that I said that. That I said, I have to fix this myself. You can't do it. Now, I had 10 to 15 years in prison. Maybe even 18 years in prison facing me. Like My life was obviously not working out. But this was still the first time that I said, I need to fix this myself. Just to be clear, I used drugs every day for another two weeks. I was sleeping on some girl's couch. And but that entire time I was trying to figure out what to do. I found the next place I was going to go to. It was cheaper, which was part of the reason I felt so bad. My parents were paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month for this rehab I was in, and it sucked. I wanted to find something cheaper. This place was under a thousand dollars, and I found it. I was so messed up the day I walked in there. I had um, sunglasses on at eight p.m. when I went to the interview because I'd been using all day and I didn't want them to see it. Um, but I checked myself into that place, ended up being sober in that place for eight months before I went to court. Because I'd been sober for eight months, the judge gave me one year instead of the minimum five to six to seven years I was going to get otherwise. And so wow. it worked. 
but it worked because I took responsibility. And that thing taught me two things. First of all, stop lying about how shitty your life is. Um, A, nobody believes it anyway. And B, the moment you lie about it, your whole reality becomes about the lie versus fixing what's actually going on. And the second piece was I have the power to change whatever I want in my life. It may not be perfect. I may not get it right right away. But I can do it. I have the power to get it done. And I've used those lessons, stop lying about how you're doing and take responsibility for what's going on in your life really ever since. That is, uh, that's such a great story. You said so much. You know, it was, it's funny. One of the things I remember, I think from your talk was you, you said, yeah, the addiction process, like the way our traditional recovery um, treatments is it's so backwards it's like you 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 equated it to like cancer treatment too like i'm not going to give you chemo (laughs) if you don't start getting better right it's like when you think about it in like that realm it's like yeah holy shit like that's not gonna work no absolutely not and we wouldn't Um, even think we wouldn't even think to to say that to somebody is hey uh if you went out in the sun yesterday i'm not treating you anymore what (laughs) what are you talking about i have cancer treat me for my cancer yeah there was something else that uh, that was in your talk that was really powerful, and it kind of ties in with what you just said, kind of like the, the current model of treatment. And you said something like, I think it was 96% of people get absolutely no help from these like addiction recovery, traditional systems, assuming yeah. like AA, and 90% of people fail when they do. Yeah. Like that's just crazy to me and like I don't even believe it. And so my question to you is like don't I thought I thought AA worked. I thought these you know th- these people these infrastructures were getting all this success. So uh, what's going on there? Why are, are why are why are these statistics so dismal and yeah. it seems like you're the only person that wants to get results. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I, I want to qualify. I'm, not, I'm definitely not the only person. I'm one of a very few number of people, but I'm definitely not the only person. I would almost talk about it like, you know, while the rest of the world is arguing whether you should be having like McDonald's or In-N-Out, the biohacking world is talking about completely different elements of how to improve your health. I would equate yeah. that to what I'm doing in the addiction space, right? Let's be clear. 90% of people are not talking about biohacking. The people right. who are are very intricate about it. And I think we, we do the same thing at Ignited. So yeah, look, the numbers are actually very, very simple. If you talk about what we traditionally think of as addiction, there are about 25 to 30 million people in the US at any given year that struggle, okay? And there are only about two and a half million people that get treatment. So right there, that's 90% of people who don't get treatment. But while there are 25 million people or so who meet addiction criteria per se, there are another 40 to 45 million people who struggle with drugs and alcohol. They may not meet that criteria. Almost none of those people get help. So you've got about 65 to 70 million people who struggle with addiction in this country in any given year or struggle with drugs and alcohol, wow. food and sex, and only about 2 million, 2.5 million get help. So yeah, we're talking about literally over 90% of people who need help here don't get professional help. Um, and then when we talk about success in, in treatment, I want to be really clear about how I determine success. I'm determining success the way they determine success. Mm. That means long-term sobriety, right? In traditional recovery, the only thing that counts as success is long-term sobriety. And based on their criteria, over 90% of people who enter treatment end up relapsing within a year. And I think it's like 93 to 95 within five years. 
So almost nobody succeeds based on the success criteria that you have. Now, I think part of the problem, to be perfectly honest, is their success criteria is idiotic. It's a dumb, dumb way of determining success. Yeah. It's, people who drink don't have a drinking problem. People who have a drinking problem have a whole set of things that come up, and abstinence is not the right way to measure. That's why my book is called The Abstinence Myth. Abstinence is just not the right way to measure whether they're doing better. And, and you know this for, it's the same in biohacking, um, it would be really crazy to determine success as a black or white, all or nothing issue in almost any other area of life. But in addiction, if you're not fully sober, you're failing in recovery. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, I, I remember, I, I think it was in your book or it could have been the, 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 the talk you gave. You were saying like a great example of that was you know one of your clients because she was in some type of um, recovery program as well as doing some of the things you guys are doing at Ignited. And her drinking problem, I want to say her name was Jane or something, went down like she went from like a drink a night to like, I don't know, three drinks a week. It was like huge. I mean like that's a huge win for she somebody. Went from a, you know? She went from and almost someone, two bottles a night to six drinks a week. <laughs> Six drinks a week. Okay, that's what it was. Um, and like you said, you, you're like over there high-fiving her saying, like, great job. She's even telling you, like, I feel, like, better. I'm, like, starting to get more clarity in my life and notice things. You know, and as a coach, like, I think the same thing. Like, I'm, I'd be high-fiving her, like, dude, we're, 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 oh, we're, yeah. we're chipping away at this. This is great. But like you said, I forget whatever the group was. A, let's just say, was like, you're failing. It was actually what a you... therapist. It was oh, it was a therapist. therapist. Yeah. yeah. Her therapist was like, hey, I'm still worried that you're drinking. <laughs> and I, I was so pissed. I was so mad. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give her name because, yeah. you know, I don't, that's for her to give. But uh, yeah, she was on our group yesterday. And it's funny because she tells her story. So she dropped that therapist sense. Uh, she doesn't even drink six drinks a week on average now. She's now drinking about three drinks a week on average. There's really only one night that she drinks and she kind of likes to have a couple of glasses of wine that night. And that's it. And that's been going on for months for her, and it's working really, really well. And I think it's absolutely moronic to tell somebody who went from drinking 12 to 13 bottles of wine a week to having three glasses that you're worried about their goddamn drinking. That's stupid. That is dumb. And if you don't like that, then you can DM me and get pissed at me. Um, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that abstinence is wrong. If she wants to be abstinent, that's great. But how do you tell somebody who dropped 97, 98% of their drinking that they're messing up? That's just such the wrong message, right? If somebody's trying to lose 100 pounds and they lost 97 pounds, <laughs> what do you do but buy them a balloon? Like, right. that's just dumb. I'm so, worried about the three pounds you still haven't lost. Oh, you know, you didn't get 100. You didn't have 100. This has been a failure. That's freaking stupid. So... And by the way, just so you know, I, I hear these stories all the time. That was just one example. We had a woman yeah. just the other day who um, on average drank a bottle to a bottle and a half of wine every night and had the first five days where she didn't ever finish a bottle of wine. One of those days, she drank one glass, literally five ounces of wine. And what drives me crazy is in our group, we were like, oh my God, that's amazing. Literally like high fives in the chat and all this stuff. And I know if she was in rehab or if she had a sponsor or if she was in treatment, they would say, you relapse. You only have one day sober. And 
that drives me crazy. And I believe firmly that that's the reason why we are 95% failure in our, uh, in our industry is we take people who are getting A's in recovery, A's, not F's. They're not, they're not 40% improved, which by the way is still great. Mm-hmm. They're not 40% improved. They're 97% improved and we're telling them they're F's and then we wonder why they don't want to come back and we're the ones messing it up for them. Yeah. So can you talk about, on that note, talk, can we talk about some of the things that you guys are doing over at Ignited and you know, why, why you guys are, are getting su- such great success and just what's different compared to the, the typical traditional model? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking that question. Um, look, we get about 50% reductions in use within a month or two, which I think is incredible. Um, all remote. And, and the reason is simple. We celebrate successes. We help people identify why they drink and use. In case it's not clear to you if you're somebody who struggles, and most of us, we either struggle ourselves or we know somebody who struggles. Almost everybody I know at least is connected to somebody who's struggling with alcohol, drugs, or sex, or food right now. Absolutely. Um, But those aren't the problem, right? If you eat too many donuts, donuts are not your problem. It's whatever else is going on in your life that makes you unable to handle it so much. And then you learn at some previous point in your life that when you eat a bunch of sugar and fat, you feel better from the thing that you're actually struggling with. At Ignited, we almost completely ignore the using itself. We say, what I say to people all the time is, hey, if you drank and you meant not to, I don't want to know how much you drank, although we, we do ask that question sometimes, but I want to know what made you drink. What was going on? What was the thought right before you drank that made you go, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go have a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I want to work on. And the way I equate it to, and I tell this, the people in my groups this all the time, I equate it to like history class when I was in high school. Everybody had at least one class in high school they hated, right? It just... You hated that class. Walking to that class, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I got to go to this class again. Um, and in that class, you would ask for hall room passes all the time. You'd say you forgot <laughs> stuff in your locker. You'd, you'd have to go to the bathroom like three times during class. Why? It's not that your bladder was more active during that class. You hated the class. You wanted to pass. And I think the same thing happens to a lot of my people in life. Their life isn't working out the way they want them to. Alcohol and drugs are their escape. So I can decide to focus on their medicine, which is what most treatment does, and says, hey, stop taking your medicine, or I can make their life better. The reason Ignited is called Ignited is my goal is to ignite people into a life of passion, a life of purpose, a life that feels to them like they don't want to get a hall pass from it. And if you don't want to get a hall pass from your life, a drink, I drink. I drink socially. I drink moderately. But I don't want to escape my life. And when I drink too much, I know for a fact something else is going on in my life that I need to address. Mm -hmm. And so some people pursue us and get abstinent. They just stop drinking because their life becomes so good they don't want to drink anymore. Or they try to moderate and they realize they don't actually like drinking a little bit. They're an all or nothing kind of person and they decide to quit on their own. But a lot of people get 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% reductions with us and they get to a place where they're okay with it. And... While most people in their lives initially are really, really scared of this, what I've found is what everybody wants in your life is for you to be happy and safe. Mm-hmm. And so they're using the model that society has given them. Hey, you're an alcoholic. You have this disease. Um, the disease will never end. You have to never touch a drink. If you do, you'll be dead within a month. They use that model because that's a story we get told. But once they see our clients doing well, 
drinking rarely or drinking half or or a third as much as they used to, but they're doing okay, a lot of people actually come over to our side and say, we're so grateful. I get these emails every week. I'm so grateful that I learn about what you're doing because I used to think that my husband, my wife, my kid was gonna be sick for the rest of my life and I had to worry about them. And now I see that there's a path out of this for them that doesn't have to include that way of looking at it. And that's what we all want. We want happiness and joy. Yeah, amen to that, brother. You, you know, but you're also doing like some unique stuff. I mean, it's not. Uh, I I love how you said we get to the root cause, which almost shocks me though that these other traditional forms are not getting to the root cause. Maybe they just get there way later. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think you're right. I think they do get there, but they put the abstinence first, which is just stupid. Yeah. It's just not. It's it's not right, and I I get why they're doing it. They're doing it because first of all, look, when you're drunk, you don't care about the stuff that stresses you out as much. So people come to our group and they're intoxicated, but I'd rather they show up intoxicated and feel okay about it than feel like they can't show up because they drank and missed the message. There's wow. actually, if you don't mind, I'll share a story. There's a woman Please, in my group. Yeah. I can share her story because she's public about it. Uh, and she's actually becoming a coach with us, which is really cool. So cool. Uh, but her name is Aaliyah. She came from meth. Um, but she tells a story of, so because we're digital, you can be on your phone and do our, our program. She was at her dealer's house with a friend. But she liked our Tuesday group. That's a group that I lead. She liked <laughs> it so much. She was listening to the group at the dealer's house while waiting for drugs. She had one headphone in and her friend had another one. They were both literally watching the group live. She had already told us that she relapsed, so she was using, because we do this whole fuck shame thing, like, just be honest with us. You never need to lie to me. So she was honest about it. And then in the middle of the thing, she actually told us that she was at the dealer's house. (laughs) And I told told this story, and I'll tell it here because it impacted her, so maybe it'll impact somebody else. And I say, look, I I didn't know that this would impact her this way yet, but... I said, what, what I see happening a lot in addiction is people are driving a car, the car being their life, and they have their hands on the wheel tight, and they're holding on for dear life because it feels like everything is falling off, and, and they're going to die. And they see themselves driving towards the end of the cliff, and they're about to fly off. And they're, they're holding on, and the foot is on the gas, and they're going to die. Like They know life is falling apart, and they're going to fly off that cliff. And what they all forget is that at any moment, you can just turn the wheel really, really hard, right? Just jerk the wheel as hard as you can, right, left, whatever. Just don't go straight off the cliff. Now, if you think about that analogy to some extent, that is not a fun moment. You're driving full speed forward and you got to turn like that and you might flip the car. You may hit something else. Life may be a nightmare after you do that as well, but you know you're heading to certain death. And if you just turn the wheel, it might get better. And she heard this. She's at the dealer's house. She looks at her friend. She says, let's just get the fuck up. Let's get up and leave. They walk out. They don't get drugs that day. That was the last day she did meth. Wow. And her friend who was in the group with her was evading law enforcement. She'd been on a run because of some tax debt and things like that. And she looks at her, and this is going to, every time I tell this story, I tear up, but she looks at her and she says, you know what, I'm going to turn myself in. Wow. She goes to the police station, she turns herself in, she serves a couple of months in jail, she comes out and she's sober too. 
And now Aaliyah's been sober for over two years and she's becoming a coach with us. But like, would any of that interaction been better if I told Aaliyah, hey, you're using, you can't come to a group while you're high, get out of here? No, the answer is no. Nothing would have been better if I would have judged her because her life isn't perfect. And I use these stories internally to to remind myself that I'm not here, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Like, I'm not better than anybody else. I had a journey. It led me somewhere I love. I've got a family I love. I live in a house I love and a place I love. My kids are amazing. Life is, I get to help people every single day of my life. My job is to keep my eye on my lane and go as hard as I can and as fast as I can down that lane and bring as many people with me. Judgment, envy, jealousy, all that bullshit, it's got no space in my life. So good, man. Um, you know, one of the things that came to my mind is when you're telling this story, it would be so easy as just a coach or anybody looking from the outside is to shame that person. Like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, ooh, you better get out of there. That's just like a typical knee-jerk reaction, and we're doing it out of love or out of care or if it's a family member, but it doesn't work, right? It's not going to work. And you no. didn't do that. You just said, okay, well, you know, let's, I'm going to tell you the story instead. And yeah. you, that, that pivoted everything. I'm curious, though, also on this note, you know, I was just thinking because we were talking before we jumped on here. You have, you have three kids. I have two. And I'm curious, you know, as a parent – um, do you ever think about your own struggles, obviously growing up in addiction? And do you ever, you know, I'm always trying, I know one of my biggest things and I'm getting coached currently with a parent cause I'm trying to just get better as a dad. Um, but do you ever like, is there ever any fear of like, Ooh, like, uh, I would, you know, I'm scared, uh, that my kids could go down some addiction path or is there, and is there All anything the that you, um, that you're trying to foster, I guess, in your kids, from a, from a parent standpoint, knowing what yeah. you know now so that you can give them the best input for success down the line, that they don't have to go through what you went through and so many others. All the time. And there are so many things, actually, so I'll just talk about some of them. But first of all, I'll be honest. My parents never had a single conversation with me about feelings, about how you're doing inside your head, same or, about the, fact that, or <laughs> about the fact that adults make mistakes and, and they, my kids can learn from my mistakes. It was kind of like, do what we do, do what we say, and then just keep your head on the prize and stop asking fucking questions. Yes, um, yes. So my wife and I try to raise our kids completely differently than that. And one of the things is letting them know that we make mistakes. I'm not as good at, the, at it as my wife is, but I'm working on it constantly. <laughs> and the other one is them knowing that and knowing clearly that it's so much better to just tell us what is actually going on and we can work on it together than it is to try to pretend that everything is fine uh, and, and solve it on their own. And look, I'll be very honest, we're, um, we're getting, my kid is 11 years old almost, my oldest, and so we're getting to a place pretty soon here where the sex and drug conversation is going to end up having to come in. And my conversation with them is going to be simple and it's going to be this, look, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and they've led me down really, really bad paths because I made wrong decisions and I wish there was somebody there that I could talk to along the way. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm probably going to drug test my kids from a pearly, pretty early age, but but the conversation I'm going to have with them is this. I'm, I'm not going to punish you for things you're doing, but I need to know what's going on and I need us to be able to have a conversation. So I'm going to find out what's going on. You can come and tell me or I'm going to find out on my own. Either way, we're going to be okay I want to support you. Things, friends are going to offer you stuff. Friends are going to do things with you. 
It's just going to happen. There's no way to avoid that part of it. That's also part of growing up. I need you to be able to skin your knee and be able to kind of learn as we go. I just don't want anything hidden. One of the yeah. hardest things that is was true in my family, my dad was a physician. I was 124 pounds. Like, I think it was pretty clear I was not okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked to me about it once. Not once. Nobody sat me down. I mean, friends did. Nobody, like... My dad never sat me down and said, you, what's going on with you? Right? My parents thought I was using heroin um, because I never used meth around them. And when you don't use meth after your daily meth user, you get really, really tired. So you fall asleep. They thought I was on, on heroin. My parents thought I was on heroin and nobody sat me down and had a conversation. Are you on fucking heroin? <laughs> like, yeah, what? And my dad was a doctor. Right. Right? Um, I'm not going to do that with my kids. Right? And so... I'm I'm talking to my kids about things that my parents never talked to me about. Now, look, I'm going to mess stuff up. I'm not going to hit this out the park. I'm not going to be perfect on this. And it's okay. Or, you know, maybe I'll hit it out the park. I'm not going to be perfect on it. But um, yeah. I think the fear is real. There are things our kids have to deal with that we never had to deal with. And that's just a reality. Um, and so all I get to do is be there for my kids and let them know that I'm there for them, whether they do this perfectly or not. Like my clients. Yeah. Nice. Love that. Um, one, one more quick question and then I want to jump into the lightning round of questions. Um, if, if you could just kind of talk about, I know you've, you've already talked about all the cool things you're doing at Ignited, but you have this process called adaptive treatment. So yeah. maybe you can kind of expand on that because it's not like, it's not, um, I think when people think of traditional addiction recovery therapy, they think of like, oh, I have to talk about my feelings and mm. you don't do that at Ignite. I mean, that's part of it, but it's, it's a very uh, multifaceted approach. So maybe you could. It is. It, I mean, anything can be part of it, but nothing necessarily has to. So adaptive treatment is not something I created. Um, it's a concept that's been around addiction research for 15, 20 years. And the idea is really simple. Um, different people have different needs, and so they need different things to fix those needs. And not everybody's the same. It's a pretty simple concept. Um, but in reality, in the addiction field, that never ends up being true. Most treatment centers don't even give you one-on-one therapy. They just give you, take you to meetings over and over and over. And the meetings are the same. Everybody does the same thing. Um, adaptive recovery is around the idea of you give people what you think will work best for them, and then you measure if it worked or not. And if it works, you keep doing it. Maybe you add other things to see if they will make things better. If they don't work, you stop doing those things and you add other things to see if they will improve. It's a pretty simple concept. Everybody who's not in the addiction space totally understands it. Um, What we try to do, because we have technology on our side, is we give people a program that we started and then we measure how they're doing on a regular basis. And then we keep inserting new tools and new approaches um, And as we develop our software and as we get better and better on the technology front, we get better and better at understanding, did the thing we just give them make them better? Like, let's say, I'll I'll give a really simple example. Every day they come in, they give us on a scale of zero to 100, how are you doing? So if somebody comes in on one day and and they're 20-something, and then the next day they come in at 40, I want to know what made things better. Mm -hmm. Is it just something that happened in their life? Is it something we showed them? Is it something else? If they come in one day at an 80 and the next day at 20, I want to understand what made things worse. That's what treatment should be. If you can find reliable things that make somebody's day better, they need more and more of those. If you can find reliable things that make their day worse, even if if that includes my treatment, by the way, 
you need to do less and less of it. So what ends up happening, for instance, we have 14 hours of live groups every week. Um, it's me and about five or six other coaches that we have do 14 hours of live groups. I think I'm a pretty nice guy, but some people may really not like me. They don't like the way I talk. I swear quite a bit. Maybe they don't enjoy that. You shouldn't have to watch me to get help with Ignited. It doesn't matter that it's my company. It doesn't matter that I started it. I don't matter in this equation. Right. The client matters. So we have a client, we have a coach named Kate. Kate is like a warm hug. I'm not like a warm hug. Kate is like a warm <laughs> hug. She's Australian, so she's got the accent. She's got oh, like yeah. seven kids. She's an amazing woman. Like you, you see her and you just want to sit down with her and have tea. Yeah. If you go to Kate's group and Kate's group makes you better. Our system should recommend more of Kate's group and less of mine if you don't like me and I make you worse. We don't have a way of doing that in brick and mortar rehabs because how would you even keep track of that? There's no way to keep track of it. But because we use technology, the goal at Ignited is over and over and over to create more and more tools and then give people tastes of those tools, see how the tools help them feel and let them keep what works and take away what doesn't. And in the end, everybody ends up, the reason it's called adaptive treatment is at the end, you end up with a treatment that is adapted to you and it's your version of it. And as long as you keep doing that, hopefully you'll keep getting better and better and better. And if something changes, the system will recognize it and we'll be able to help you. So cool. Um, before we jump into the lightning round of questions, uh, anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Um, I mean, I'll just say one thing. There are probably some people, as I mentioned, listening right now who are family members of people who need help. I think this is the most under understood concept in addiction. So I'll say it. It's not comfortable for people to listen to. But most people who struggle with addiction are not operating on their own. And this is one of the things that's so wrong with the disease model. The disease model says, hey, my husband is sick. He has an alcohol problem. Go fix him and everything will get better. Things operate within a system. It's always true. And so the way I talk about it in the book, biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality are aspects that matter for anybody's addiction. You're not interfering that much in your husband's biology or your, or your wife's biology. But when it comes to psychology and environment and even spirituality to some extent, you may be playing a role. And it's not very easy for people to understand that the way they interact with a person who has an addiction problem can make the problem worse. The way their parents are interacting with them can make it worse. The way their employer is interacting with them can make it worse. But we're all part of the equation. So we actually have a family SOS program and workshop that helps people understand addiction in this very different way where it's, again, right? When you say the person is sick, everybody just focuses on the person with a problem. Yeah. You're missing so much of the problem if you're only focusing on this person. By the way, another part of the reason why there's 90, 95% success, uh, failure rates in rehab you take somebody who has an alcohol problem, put them in a house on their own for two, three months. It's a lot easier not to drink there. You bring them back to their house, boom, the drinking starts right up again. Why? Because nothing got done at the house. Yeah. So we also offer help for the family members. And sometimes the person who has an addiction problem isn't even interested in getting help. And it's actually the family who can get help for it. So I just wanted to say that out loud, whether it's us or somebody else. If you have a family member who's struggling with addiction, sometimes you... <laughs> getting a different understanding of addiction can yeah. really, really help them get the help that they need eventually. 
I love that, man, because you know it's such a holistic approach. Because even like in in marriages or so, and stuff, I see a lot of times people, and we love to do it. It's just natural, but we love to be like, "It's you're the one who needs help. You're the problem." And guess what? You're time. probably the problem. And I'm saying that as myself. Like I got to do a lot of work first before I can start saying my wife or my kids are the problem. And that's why I'm reacting a certain way. It's like maybe I should fix myself. And so. Man, on a holistic level, if the entire family or the relationships getting tweaked from both ends, that's got to be really powerful. Really. I mean, when we get families who are willing to engage in this way, the changes are insane. Like, you get families who really were on the verge of divorce, verge of breaking up, and like that, things get better. It's really beautiful. And I mean, just look at your story too with your dad, right? It's like... Yeah. I mean, imagine if he was somebody was coaching him like, hey, are you not noticing these things of how you interact with your son? Yeah, I mean, yeah. How he Absolutely. changes would have helped you change as well, right? So, yeah. 100%. You're so right. So right. Um, you ready for some uh, lightning round questions and then we'll wrap this up? Let's do it, man. All right. If the old you could see the new you, mm. what would the new you say? <laughs> what would the new me say? Yeah. What would the new you say to your your old self um, I think I would just look him in the eyes and say you're good enough you don't have to prove anything to anybody and it's gonna give, it's gonna be okay I love that I mean, dude I can totally really I can totally relate to that yeah. um, what are what are some choices that uh, that you made that you think made you who you are today hmm I think there were some lessons I learned. I'm still making those choices and still applying them. Um, one relatively recent lesson is that I don't have to figure out how to do everything on my own. It's okay to ask for help. That was a really, really big one for me. Um, another one that I learned actually a while ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, at the beginning of this phase of my life, um, was that I don't need to be perfect. Uh, I had a lot of perfectionism issues growing up. And if it wasn't perfect, it was failure. Again, kind of like that black or white model. Um, and when I first realized that good is actually good, perfect is not the only version of good, um, it released a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of really procrastination for me because I, if I couldn't do it perfectly, I didn't want to do it at all, and it caused massive problems in my life. That's uh, that's another one. Um, wow. and, and last but not least, and this is... A choice, it's a daily choice, it's an ongoing choice. And it's um, there's always more to learn and there's always more that I can do to become a better version of myself. And that process will probably never end and I'm actually really happy about that. That's awesome. Anybody in in the health, wellness, or addiction, recovery, anybody in or the psychology world that that you follow who inspires you? Is there anybody? Yeah, I think in the psychology world broadly, uh, Bruce Lipton is one of those guys that I, I pay a lot of attention to. He's just, we've interviewed him a couple of times for, for the podcast and uh, I remember my wife, when she before I ever put her on with him, she's like, oh, he's the guy that read, wrote that book you really love. He's <laughs> some old guy, I don't really want to talk to him. And then we get, off the, we get off the interview with him and she's like, that was amazing, and he's like the happiest human being I've ever met in my life. I want more of that. Um, if you haven't read his book, um, or at least one of his books, um, 
the biology of belief it changed so much so much about my life um so he's a he's a big one and then i'm you know i used to hate history and now i love history for the lessons it gives me about the experiences of other really amazing successful people um and so everything from henry ford to thomas edison and you know um a lot of a lot of people who've um who made a lot of mistakes and made the world a better place are people that i now look up to that's fascinating how you kind of came full circle now that it's like not forced down your throat you're like i actually kind of like it learning about this stuff i love it it's so funny um my next question was going to be like, are there any books that you would recommend? So we already know biology of belief is for sure one. Anything, is there any, any other ones that really stand out? You know, I used to only read fiction earlier in life. It was like my break. But yet I feel like I learned a lot from those things. So uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, almost anything that guy wrote is incredible. Um, 1984 is one of my favorite books of all times and uh, A Brave wow. New World as well. Um, but in, in the nonfiction world um, that we live in, I discover new things all the time. But like Ray Dalio's Principles was really, really, really powerful. I mentioned the biology of belief. He also has a book called The Honeymoon Effect, um, Bruce Lipton, that, that, is, that is really powerful. I love books uh, around and about the Dalai Lama. Um, I, uh, I've read a, a handful of those books um, trying to think god there's there's so many i i'm i'm reading books all the time right now so it's actually almost hard to to yeah. think of specific ones um think and grow rich is a book that i read when i was younger it's actually really funny because so many of the principles connect a lot of these like rich dad poor dad and biology of belief and think and grow rich are actually very interconnected sort of concepts and principles yeah. um but again, I, I, I believe firmly in surrounding yourself with as much of that input as you can. So all of those do well by me. Yeah, those are great. Um, any rituals or practices that you do, like on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I use my five-minute journal every day. Um, having a gratitude practice was a really, really big one for me. My brain, that perfectionism brain, normally goes to everything that's not working right, everything I need to fix. And so <laughs> me, me being too. able to put a focus on... What is actually going well was big. Uh, I'm working on abundance instead of scarcity now. And so I even added like ways in which I'm abundant in that same thing. And also, and I have the feelings wheel right here in front of me. I teach a lot of men that I work with um, how to get connected to their emotions. And so that's another practice. Every day I write at least three to five kind of feelings that I'm having so that I can get connected to my emotions. Yeah. Um, other than that, I exercise pretty much every day. That's a really big piece for me. And, um, yeah, I think that's a little solitude time, a little time to just be by myself every day. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm gonna send you a, a t-shirt. You gotta give me, let me know your size. I got, I created these shirts to help me remind myself about abundance. It says "Give more, win more." So I'm gonna send I you love one. It. Uh, yeah, get, please, man. I'll wear yeah. it proudly. Yeah. A um, couple more questions, and we'll wrap it up. Um, yeah. I want you to finish this sentence because 2020 was a crazy year with the pandemic and everything. But I see people Ooh. like yourself and other. Uh, amazing people out there that totally reframed 2020 and they made it great. And so uh, instead of talking as if 2020 was the worst year ever, finish this sentence. 2020 was the greatest gift because dot, dot, dot. Oh, I actually have a lot of reasons why. Uh, 2020 was the greatest gift because I got to spend more time with my family in one year than I normally do in three or four. 
Um, it's also the year that people finally started understanding what the hell it is I do for a living. <laughs> when I used to tell people that I help individuals struggle struggling with addiction online, they were like, you can't do that. You have to see them in person. And then COVID hit and everybody's like, oh, online, I got it. <laughs> Nobody knew what the hell Zoom was three years ago. Yeah. Um, so that was another big one. And actually, you know what? More than anything, it's this. Uh, 2020 was a great year because there are always challenges in life. Every day, every moment, every hour, every year, and every decade. And if we let what's happening on the outside determine how we feel about ourselves and about our lives and about our world inside, then we're in for a shitstorm. you got to figure out a way to just be nimble enough to be okay no matter what's happening around you. Nice. I love that. All right. Uh, last but not least, man, Dr. Adi Jaffe, where can people find you? Um, one of the easiest ways is just my name, A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E.com. We created that website literally for this question because we kept getting it asked on podcast. And the other place is ignited.com. So ignited is spelled I-G-N-T-D. If you look at the bottom of my book, it says it, uh, but you can't really see it there. Yeah, I-G-N-T-D. Um, and so that's that's how you spell it. Uh, it's ignited with a bunch of vowels taken out. That's the other good place. But honestly, it's pretty easy to find me online if you just Google me. I'm I'm pretty much everywhere. Love it. Thanks, brother. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, man. It was um, really, really great to see you and connect again after the biohacking conference. And uh, I hope to see you again soon. Boom. <laughs>